Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview British author and cultural historian E. James West. His latest book, Our Kind of Historian, The Work and Activism of Lerone Bennett Jr., was published in July 2022 by the University of Massachusetts Press. Bennett was perhaps best known for his writings in the popular Black magazines Ebony and Jet, as well as for his classic book, Before the Mayflower, A History of Black America from 1619 to 1962. I began my interview with E. James West by asking him what brought him to Lerone Bennett. Yeah, so my entry point into Lerone Bennett's work really is is Ebony Magazine and, and Johnson Publishing Company. And I ended up writing my PhD thesis about Ebony Magazine, and I was particularly interested in the historical content. And then over time, Lerone Bennett, you know, emerged as really the central figure behind a lot of that material. So he was a figure who I hadn't really heard of previously. You know, I wasn't raised with his work. Um, I didn't read Ebony as a child or as a young adult. My background is is more from a research perspective than necessarily being someone who consumed his work or engaged with his work. He was a big part of my first book, and then ultimately I decided I wanted to write a biography project. And uh, one was meeting his his daughter, Joy Bennett, who has been a wonderful friend and and also just someone who's been really generous with their time and with their own experiences and has helped me a lot. How did you even decide that Ebony was going to be a focal point for your PhD? What drew you to Ebony as a magazine? My undergraduate dissertation had been about James Brown and his social activism. And Ebony obviously covered James Brown quite intensively. And he also published a couple of adverts in Ebony and also Jet, uh, the sister magazine. So Ebony was a really useful source for that project. And then I just became just really interested in, in the magazine as a text. And this was around the time that a lot of Ebony's back catalogue got digitized and put on Google Books. So it was very easy to access and very easy to search. And I just found it a really fascinating document. And there's so many different pieces of magazines you have editorial content you have letters to the editor you have the advertising you have opinion pieces there's all of these different things going on and I think it could have been another magazine but it just happened to be Ebony that I became interested in. Yeah that's fascinating because I grew up with Ebony's and Jet's (laughs) all in the house And, and I wasn't unique in the Black community Ebony and Jet were the popular magazines that, you know, we turned to to find out about what was affecting Black people, both in terms of culture and history, as well as social concerns. So it's interesting to hear that you, growing up in England, were also drawn to this magazine that had such a presence in the United States. I mean, it's such a visual magazine, which sounds like a really obvious thing to say, um, because it's, it's a magazine. 
But I think Ebony is such a fascinating historical text, regardless of whether you grew up with it or just looking at it and, and what the magazine was trying to do and the rationale and just the people who worked there is just a really interesting range of perspectives and people from different political, philosophical backgrounds and some really, really talented journalists. You know, we, we'll probably talk about it a bit more. John Hayes Johnson, you can criticise him for a lot of things, but he knew how to build a newsroom. You know, he knew how to attract really talented photojournalists, writers, um, advertising executives. And Bennett was just one of an incredible roster of people, Hans Massacoy, Simeon Booker, Hoyt Fuller, Ira Bell Thompson, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And I think the more you dig into Ebony or to, into Johnson Publishing as an institution, there's just so many fascinating stories to to think about. And the one that I was most interested in was, was Bennett, but his story is just one of a lot of different stories that, that kind of run through Johnson Publishing. And what made Lerone Bennett Jr. unique? He was able to carve out this really interesting space for himself within the company, and he effectively made himself indispensable because he becomes known as this popular historian and he has this enormous audience and he's known for the books and the writing that he does. But he didn't start his career that way. You know, he didn't study history at, at university. When he started his journalistic career in, in Atlanta, he wasn't known as a historian. That was something that came a bit later in his career. But once he'd found this, you know, space, he did an incredible job of, of making it his own. And he's on a very short list of, of people at, at Johnson Publishing that were really essential, I think, to the company's success, certainly in the 1960s and later on as well. So he, you know, he's not a professional historian in, in the way that someone like John Hope Franklin is. And John Hope Franklin is a good comparison in some ways to Bennett. They're both based in Chicago for a lot of their lives. They both have you know quite intimate experience of, of the South. And they both understand history in, in interesting ways. But yeah, Bennett is, he's a very talented journalist, but he's able to translate that into this position as a popular historian, which no one else at Johnson Publishing was able to do. And that made him a really valuable ally um, and also asset for John H. Johnson. Now, the title of your book is Our Kind of Historian. Why did you decide to use that phrase? And it also shows up uh, several times in your book. Yeah, so it comes from a short speech made by Ishmael Reed. He awarded Bennett a prize uh, towards the end of Bennett's career. And this was the way he described Bennett. And when I first saw that speech, um, I thought it just really, for me, encapsulated what Bennett's appeal was. Because you can make a, a really good case for Bennett being the most widely read Black historian of the 20th century. And his appeal isn't really based on academic or professional acumen. Like he wasn't, as I've already mentioned, he didn't study history at university. He doesn't have a doctorate, although he has plenty of honorary doctorates. He's not part of that first real wave of black historians in the academy, although he does for brief periods in his career work at universities. He's someone who is a popular historian in the historical sense of someone within the black community who's invested in telling stories and histories of black people and he does that with the tools that are available to him in the vehicles that he has available to him and that happened to be a popular magazine rather than you know an academic monograph part of it is his language and his talent as a writer 
and he has quite an evocative style that really speaks to a lot of people in a very direct way. But he also, I think, always had a very clear sense of who his audience was and who he was writing for. And in the book, I say something along the lines of like Bennett's imagined audience and his intended audience and his desired audience was black people. And that's who he was writing for. And that's who was always at the forefront of his mind, this this idea of the collective black community. That's, I don't think, always the case for a lot of other black historians, be it they might be writing for a more academic audience or they might have been raised in a different historical tradition. But yeah, I think that's something that was really, really endeared Bennett to the black community. He's also often called the people's historian. And again, Mm. that description, Mm -hmm. it kind of gets to that same sense of intimacy and that relationship and that sense of commitment, if you like. Right. You also talk about not just his writing and his work, uh, because he was a prolific writer, but you talk about his activism. So can you think of, in terms of his articles, anything he wrote for Ebony or Jet or anywhere else that typifies the way in which he used his writing in an activist role? I think probably the most obvious example, or at least the most famous example, is his work on Abraham Lincoln. Um, Bennett writes a very influential article called Was Abe Lincoln a White Supremacist? Which, which is I pretty bold pu- for the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I believe that was published in February 1969 edition of Ebony, it might have been 1968. And uh, this is something he's been thinking about since he was quite young. And he finally gets the chance to, to write this article. And, and basically he's staking out his thesis on Abraham Lincoln, which for the time was a very controversial position. I think it's a position that has aged pretty well, just in terms of both what we know about Lincoln and then also how historians have written about Lincoln and understood his attitudes towards race and issues such as colonization and things like that. But yeah, that was Bennett. I think it encapsulates some of the best and and worst of Bennett, although maybe best and worst is not exactly the right way to describe it, but it shows some of his writing traits and his philosophical traits that saw him become so widely celebrated within the black community and then also were at the basis for a lot of the criticism that he received because he was seen as like an evangelist as someone who wasn't quote-unquote objective he had these interesting ideas about history but he didn't have the measured tone or approach of of a john hope franklin as an example right um and for bennett he was never really that bothered about being objective because (laughs) He didn't really like the whole idea of objectivity in terms of historical writing he saw as a fallacy. And then more broadly, he was like, in terms of his journalism, I don't know really know what objectivity is because I've never seen it operate in America. So he was more concerned with how he could disseminate ideas about history and also the relevance of history and the immediacy of history to black people. This idea of a living history was a really massive part of his writing. And he also went from that article to writing a book that came out in the early 2000s on Lincoln and his legacy. Yes. In some ways, Bennett saw that as his magnum opus, if you like. So Forced Into Glory was this, you know, it's 600 plus pages. And to be honest, in a lot of ways, it's maybe one of the least interesting of his books in the sense that he is effectively making the same argument that he makes in his 
article from the late 60s, but just over a much larger amount of space in his book. But I think that book is actually a really useful litmus test on public attitudes towards Lincoln and ideas of race and the constitution and presidential history at that particular moment in time. Um, And you can see the way that people responded to his book when it came out compared to the response to his article three decades earlier. I think it says a lot about race relations in the US and how they changed or not um, in that intervening period. Well, speaking of his books, obviously, Before the Mayflower was his first book, and it was pretty influential. Was it the first book that Johnson Publication published? There was one or two before that. Um, And uh, Bennett's Before the Mayflower was basically intended to be like the main launching point for the Johnson Publishing Book Division, which was, was founded in that period. And they actually ended up publishing a book by Paul Crump, who was an inmate in Illinois. And he wrote a book called Burn, Killer, Burn, which was is actually a really, really interesting book. It's kind of largely forgotten today, but it's in some ways quite a, a radical text. And it's quite an interesting publication for Johnson Publishing. Johnson himself, in his later years, he tended to equate Bennett's Before the Mayflower with the launch of the Johnson Book Division. And that came out in 1962. What made Before the Mayflower so influential and important? Well, a lot of it was because Bennett had a advertising and marketing platform that pretty much no other Black author had, which was Johnson Publishing Company. And that's really what makes the difference. You know, the content of what's in Before the Mayflower isn't massively different to the type of work that, for example, scholars such as Benjamin Qualls might be pulling out at that time. Probably the most consistent comparison is John Hope Franklin's From Slavery to Freedom, which was first published in 1947. And then later issues came out in the late 50s and then into the 60s. But Bennett's text wasn't a really amazing like historiographical intervention or anything like that. Um, But it just became incredibly widely read. And a lot of that was because it actually was serialized or or parts of the book were serialized in Ebony first and there was this extraordinary public response to that series Bennett's first black history series which runs in the 18 months or so prior to the publication before the Mayflower and that really generates this excitement for before the Mayflower Mm -hmm. and then when it's published it's really heavily advertised and marketed by Johnson Publishing not just in Ebony but across all of the other publications as well so it's yeah it's really Johnson Publishing and this marketing machine that John H. Johnson has created that allows Before the Mayflower to become such an enormous success. And then that really catapults Bennett from his position as a talented but fairly rank-and-file journalist into this position as one of the nation's most prominent Black historians. And it happens very fast and in quite a dramatic way. Wow. Now, Bennett died in 2018, and he was 89 at the time. Did you get a chance to interview him at all? So that was one of the regrets, I guess, of the project. And it actually shaped the way that I wrote the project, which was I didn't get the chance to speak to Bennett directly. I was scheduled to conduct interviews with him. Uh, but unfortunately, towards the end of his life, uh, he had you know health complications and that limited it. So that really shaped my decision to focus and the subtitle of the book is the work and activism of Lauren Bennett Jr. And 
that was quite intentional and I talk a little bit about it in the introduction to the book you know I don't want to speculate or speak too much to Bennett's private life or his inner world because that's not something that I really knew that much about and also my background as like a white British historian I didn't feel I had like the contextual depth or richness to really speak to that aspect of his life and I think there's other people who could do a much much better job of that and I really hope that other people write books on Lorraine Bennett that that speak more to the networks that he developed in Chicago and the like relationships and intimacies that he, he forged there. But yeah, in large part, because I wasn't able to speak directly to him. Um, and also because of, you know, my background and other, other factors as well. I, I really focused on the two things that I knew I could talk about, which was his publicly documented activism and particularly his involvement in like key black diasporic gatherings and key moments in, in the civil rights era and then also his work because he's a prodigious writer and you know you have we have a really great paper trail of the work that he he's done that's interesting because you did say you were able to speak with his daughter so i was wondering were you able to interview any of his other relatives i'm not sure if his wife was still alive at the time I mainly spoke with with Joy Bennett, who's his eldest daughter. Um, I spoke briefly with some other family members. I also spoke with former colleagues at Johnson Publishing. So, for example, I'd spoken multiple times to Simeon Booker before he he passed away. And then John Woodford is another figure who was influential in Johnson Publishing during the 1960s, who I'd spoken to and then, you know, spoke to students of his when he worked briefly at Northwestern University other figures within Chicago in terms of local historians and things like that. So it was unfortunate that I wasn't able to speak with Bennett directly. And I think in some ways it's a weakness of the book. And I think it's still a book that has qualities and merits on its own. But as I've said, I think there's definitely other stories and other ways of writing about Bennett that would benefit from those type of intimate connections to him. And I really hope that either former colleagues or maybe Joy Bennett or other people might write those type of books and those type of stories. Yeah. You know, many biographies start with the subject's origin story, you know, where they were born, when they were born, their family background and dynamics. And so obviously in in your first chapter, you introduce us to his backstory, his parents and all. But I was fascinated because you really take this macro approach to starting the book by talking about the Mississippi Delta, the region where he was born and what that area was like. And then you zoom down into his background. What made you decide to take that approach? Part of it was because I was writing another book at the same time. That book was called A House for the Struggle, and it's about the Black press and the built environment in Chicago. So I was thinking a lot about geography and space anyway. So I think that was part of it. But also I think that to really understand Bennett's approach to thinking about history and activism, it's so important to think about the context and the geography of where he was born and where he grew up. And Bennett, he talked about Mississippi a lot in his later life. And he talked about Jim Crow, Mississippi in the 20s into the 30s is pretty much the, you know, the worst place in the world for a black child to be growing up. And that's the sea that Bennett swims in at a young age. And I think it's just so important 
you know, when you think about Jim Crow Mississippi in that period, and, and in particular the Delta, there's just such a a linear line from the experience of slavery into post-Reconstruction, early 20th century life, and the cultural and political relationships and the ways that Black people found themselves bound to the land and, and bound, you know, socially, I think is was really, really instructive. And just for Bennett, it was hugely important in shaping his later attitudes and his later work and his later politics. So that was really one of the main reasons why I, I focused so hard on, on setting that broader geographical context. Because as well, I think Bennett's story is in many ways a, a larger African-American story about migration mm. and about mobility and about using the tools that he had available to him to find or create new spaces for himself, whether that's literal or intellectual or otherwise. And speaking of place, did you get the opportunity to go to Jackson, Mississippi, where he actually grew up, as well as Atlanta, where he went to college and then worked there, and then um, Chicago, where he spent the bulk of his adult life? Yeah, so I spent a bit of time in Jackson. It was actually before I started writing this book in earnest. That was really useful. And then Atlanta and Chicago, I spent quite a lot of time in, in both of those places and in particular using the archives at Atlanta University Center um, and Morehouse are really fantastic. And Morehouse was obviously where Bennett went for for university and Chicago, you know, a wealth of material in Chicago. But yeah, it particularly again, going back to my own background before I started spending extended periods of time in the in the States and before I started experiencing different African-American communities, there was a tendency, I think, for me and I think just for scholars more generally to talk about Black America as a monolith or to talk about the Black community as if it's a singular thing that doesn't have these like... Know, these incredible regional and cultural diversities. Um, exactly. And yeah, yeah. I, th- I think if you asked Black Atlantans and Black Chicagoans to to describe what their experience looked like, obviously in some ways it would be similar, but there's, there's, there's so many nuanced differences that I, <laughs> I think actually spending time in those spaces was was really useful. All right. Now, to be absolutely transparent for our listeners, um, you and I first met because we both served as fellows with the uh, Black Metropolis Research Consortium. And that was a a wonderful short-term fellowship to support select research projects about Chicago-based subjects. So while that fellowship enabled both of us to live and work in Chicago for a summer, one summer does not a book project make. (laughs) And one fellowship may not support an entire book project. So as a UK resident, what were the other ways that you found to support yourself as a researcher for this book? Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned the the BMRC because... It's really been a kind of intellectual home away from home for me. I was lucky enough to get three BMRC fellowships and then and then they basically told me to like they couldn't give me any more. So, so like stop applying. Um, <laughs> each of the three books that I've written has been pretty dependent on a BMRC fellowship. I've been quite lucky with being able to spend quite a lot of time in Atlanta and Chicago and then also DC. So I had quite a long term fellowship at the Library of Congress. Like, I don't think that there are insurmountable challenges 
but I also think that you know you've got to be clear about what the limitations of the work are and you know how intimately or honestly I as a as a white British scholar can speak to either the individual experience of Lorraine Bennett Jr. or the broader experience of African-American communities. And with this book, I really tried to write it in a way that I believed was accessible to a broader audience, in a way that I believed was in keeping with the type of writing that Bennett himself tried to do throughout his career, because I thought that that was one of the best ways that I could, you know, reflect on his influence, but also honour the type of work that he did. And obviously it's up to readers to decide to what extent I was able to do that. But that was, yeah, something that I was very conscious of writing this. Okay. Do you have any recommendations for, say, other biographers who may wonder about um, and interested in finding funding to be able to support themselves while writing a biography? You know, there's a lot of really great funding resources out there. I think a lot of the time it's just knowing about certain things so you know we've already mentioned the black metropolis research consortium which is a consortium of different chicago-based institutions so public libraries uh, universities etc um on a state level like state historical associations often have visiting fellowships which are a really great source you know institutions such as the library of congress national humanities center um, often have long-term fellowships some of them have specific requirements for having, you know, a PhD or some type of terminal degree, but a lot of them don't. It's just what the project is specifically and whether you can make the case for receiving funding for it. I would say that even before COVID, and it's certainly been the case after COVID, I think a lot of institutions are becoming more willing to provide funding that doesn't require people to be at specific state or local historical societies or archives you know you might be someone who really wants to write on a certain person but you might have familial commitments or it might not be practical for you to spend a lot of time away Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't get research funding to do the work that you you want to do so I, I would definitely look out for those kind of fellowships which allow you to do research digitally or online or help support doing that type of work that doesn't doesn't require you to actually spend a lot of time somewhere else. That was cultural historian and author E. James West talking with me about his latest book, Our Kind of Historian, The Work and Activism of Lerone Bennett Jr. It was published in July 2022 by the University of Massachusetts Press. This interview was recorded via Zoom on March 6th of this year. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.